Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 562 of the podcast and it is Friday the 9th of July 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Shane Neely about co-creating with AI writing and image tools. Shane has used AI text within his non-fiction book in separate sections rather than blending the output. So he sort of writes a bit, puts in uh, an excerpt from AI directly, sort of quoting it in a text box and then riffs off that. And it's definitely, it's kind of quite funny and we talk about that in the in the um, interview he also used ai tools in a collaborative process to write the book sort of retraining the algorithm based on what he'd written so far and has used images and poetry generated with ai to publish a book of ai art and poetry which he's also released as nfts which is just fascinating So Kevin Kelly says, you'll be paid in the future based on how well you work with robots. He says that in The Inevitable, which I always recommend as a fantastic book. Shane does this in his day job using AI to surface cancer research material for scientists and in his art. And I find that interesting too. And we do note, you know, artists, creatives, writers worried about AI somehow replacing us. Look, most people are using AI to solve massive problems in the world like healthcare issues and uh, environmental issues and like really important stuff that we need for humankind, but also they will make more money that way. So I don't think anyone's coming for our jobs anytime soon. You'll also hear how I changed my mind since I've been using PseudoWrite as part of my writing process and certainly how I've moved on from where I was when I first started talking about AI-generated writing. I'm loving having a different brain, in inverted commas, as part of my writing process and I'm slowly adapting to how the tool is changing the way I write and more on that to come. I'm going to do something separate on that. In the meantime, you can find all the futurist podcast episodes, including those on NFTs, AI writing, recommending books, a whole load of tools uh, and more at thecreativepen.com forward slash future. That's kind of my uh, landing page for all of this stuff. And today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons who pay for the headspace I need to think about the things that will impact authors in the coming decade and interview interesting people doing these more futurist things. You can support the show at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. And I've heard from some people they don't want to do Patreon because it's more like a monthly thing. But if you find these extra shows useful, you can buy me a coffee. (laughs) And I do drink a lot of coffee. Go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the creative pen and that can be uh, like a one-off donation or a tip or a coffee or whatever instead of a monthly subscription. Okay, let's get into the interview. Shane Neely is a data scientist and software engineer. He's also the author of AI Art Poetry and Stone Age Code from Monkey Business to AI. Welcome, Shane. Hey, Joanna. So happy to be here. 
I'm excited to talk to you. So first up, tell us a bit about how you went from lab scientist to programmer and then author. And how does your biological background help you to understand AI? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I worked in laboratories after my undergrad for several years, as as one does, um, looking for stem cells in monkey knee cartilage, engineering new viruses to inject into monkeys, various radioactive things and inhaling formaldehyde and all of that. And I eventually thought, yuck, I I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) And I joined a lab that had a lot of data uh, because they were doing genetic sequencing. And the boss was using an old programming language, kind of from the 90s and some scripts. And I was able to upgrade some of his scripts into some more modern Python programs. And he was super happy with that. And so he had me, instead of doing all the monkey procedures and, and, and virus work, he had me sit down and program and help the lab out with, with that. And so that's how I got started and found out it was a, being a coder was a much more preferable job for me. And for, um, you know, I'm doing AI writing in the last year and it's been, it's been amazing. It's been, uh, For an engineer biologist like myself, during the pandemic, pretty much exactly when it started was when I had some extra time to become more creative, but I wanted to use the angle of my skills as a programmer in order to do that. And in my day job right now, I'm at a cancer research search engine. We rank the various documents for clinical trials and publications on cancer treatments. And so we have millions of documents of language. And we build a search engine so that we could rank the most relevant ones for a patient, the most quality ones at the top of a search, obviously, like like Google, you want the first, the best things to come up first. And I'm, I'm in charge of AI and machine learning at that company. And so I spent a lot of time in natural language processing and in the, a couple of years ago, going to conferences and finding out about transformers and specifically, we use a lot of the BERT model and for language understanding, which I want to get back to with AI writing. But when I had some extra time on my hands, I was able to use some of these same platforms I use to do the language generation part. And there was a total spark when I started generating language that from a robot that I thought was hilarious. And that, that became uh, my first two books that I wrote and published this year. A lot thanks to people like yourself and the self-publishing community as well that showed me how it's possible to, even with the day job, to manage all of these things and write books and get books out and distributed across the world. So using my skills and then learning from the self-publishing community, um, Mm. I did some AI writing. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. You mentioned a few things there, which were awesome. So you said you, you were looking to be more creative and you used the word spark and also the word hilarious when it comes to writing with what we're calling robots, but this is all software, right? We're not having we're not having the classic big robot with holding a pen. <laughs> we're talking about <laughs> software. But I feel like this is something I want to emphasize is that this is fun. I'm now using uh, this tool, PseudoWrite, and I'm just giggling away at what it comes up with. And I seriously, in the last decade of writing, I have not been giggling 
as a writer and I now I spend a lot of time laughing so can you talk about this like the fun side the spark and how you used AI to to help you write the book oh my gosh yeah I'm, I'm glad you're having that experience too because yeah as soon as I turned it on and got uh, a GPT-2 model outputting some of the stuff was just it was just funny to me. It reminded me of like as a kid playing the fill in the blank Mad Libs where you just you're with your friends and you make the mistakes in the language and the mistakes are the funniest part. And so I also realized that there are so much there's so much talk around the AI um, world of how serious this is, how this is going to take over various industries and when I actually started generating, I thought this could just be good for comedy at this point. This yeah. stuff is just funny. And, you know, it may not come across that my book is partly a comedy book. It's, I'll be the first to say that Stone Age Code is a strange book. Uh, probably a lot of first time authors put something out that is their passion project. And so I combined my love of, uh, biological sciences and specifically human evolution, and then made a ton of analogies from how we evolved and the primates that we are into um, how AI is evolving. And then in every chapter ends with um, a robo excerpt where it's the, it's a GPT-2 model that is fine-tuned on my uh, language about 10 years of um, journals that I had written, journaling that I've done, as well as as I was writing the book, I would, you know, get halfway through the manuscript and put that back into the training data set so that the, and then retrain the model and the model would become progressively more and more like the book. And so that's, yeah, that's something I think, that was also fun to see how the the model itself could evolve to sound more and more like me the more the more I've written. I want to dispel the myth that you just press a button and hit generate and thus is a book. So obviously most people listening are not programmers, so they're not going to build their own model and we'll come back to fine tuning. But in terms of how you actually used the model to write, did you use it to generate ideas? Did you use it to actually write for you? What did you use it for and how did the creative process evolve? Yeah. I listened to your last ep episode with Paul Bellows and he was really spot on. And it was cool to hear that he did seem to have a similar process and specifically heavy influence on the prompt engineering aspects. And using you can use a smaller model like a GPT-2 that is that you can you can train yourself if you do really intelligent prompt engineering of of what to say, then the results can be more relevant. So I'll, I started writing Stone Age Code a year ago. I quickly also found other AI techniques that were fun and creative, specifically style transfer art. And I got distracted by that. And I realized that I could put a lot of these cool images, these AI um, neural style transferred images into a book and produce a poetry book. So what I did with that, the, the first book that I put out was I put one of these AI images on one page and 
on the next page was a poem about it. And half of the poems in the book were written by poets and collaborators. I have friends that are poets. I have a TM Foxglove in there. I had some, I had my editor who's, who's a famous poet. He was in there, Adam Cornford. And I found some other collaborators who would either write the poem about the AI image and, and their thoughts about it, or they would just write the first line of the poem. And then that's the prompt for poem writing robot. And the poem writing robot then fills out the rest of the poem. That one wasn't trained on, it wasn't fine-tuned on, um, on my writing. It was fine-tuned on a uh, Kaggle open data set of 18th and 19th century poetry. And I would find that my cherry picking frequency seemed to be about like one in 20, where it, I would generate 20 poems for one line and read them. And maybe one of them was good enough to, mm. to put into the book. And so, yeah, there's a bit of with, with this generation, you can press enter and generate a whole bunch of examples, but you still kind of have to burn your own eyeballs out at deciding which is the best one. And then once you have it, you've got to format and edit it because the, the output quality might not have not have been great. But without that, there's certain things that the robot said that I, I or a real poet never would have thought of. Some of it's funny. Some of it sounds insightful. And so there's gems in there. At the, this point with using GPT-2, I found that maybe 5% uh, or less was keepable for, for a book. And then with Stone Age Code, you did things a bit differently. You actually, it's part memoir, part more technology guide, and then it's got these inserts, which are the AI writing, which I thought was quite interesting because I feel like a lot of people who are working with these tools right now are sort of integrating it more, whereas you called it out in a text box. It's like, this is, here's the robot talking about this. And that's what also made it quite funny. But you you mentioned there intelligent prompt engineering. I think prompt engineering is a great phrase. <laughs> and you also use the term machine learning literacy. Mm-hmm. And this is really important. And I use the quote from Kevin Kelly, who says, you'll be paid in the future based on how well you work with robots. And of course, again, he means the wider AI. And you have a job right now where you're paid because mm-hmm. of your work with AI. So what are some of your tips for prompt engineering? Sure. On the the machine learning literacy was the phrase I'm using in, in marketing as trying to um, explain what people will get out of the book. Because it is a general readership, but like a general science readership book of people with a heavy interest in machine learning specifically. Maybe they you know read a lot of articles about it or you and your audience, are, I think, are perfect for it. But I did, at the same time, distill an entire machine learning textbook into it, which I try to explain with analogies to biology and fun examples and lighthearted examples. But almost every piece of jargon that I would use in my, in my day job as a machine learning engineer, I put it in the book and... So you may read it, and then if there are people who decide to go down the line of doing some programming or working with people who are trying to make more advanced models or make a model of yourself, 
which currently with commercial services is a little hard to do. Um, it's helpful to know a lot of this jargon about learning rate and optimization algorithms um, and the number of epochs to train a model and the the accuracy of how well it is predicting or, or sounding like you. Um, so these things that are involved in training, which I do as a programmer, I distill it in there and I call that, you know, you'll gain machine learning literacy. And yeah, on, um, on prompt engineering, I would basically, I'm, I'm, I write a chapter and then I kind of maybe summarize the chapter. You could have the chapter title, you could have headlines of, of individual paragraphs and build a big file of prompts which then you, I, I would run the generator on and it could produce, say, if I set it to write 20 examples for each of these prompts and I have 10 prompts, now I've got to look through 200 examples of, of what might be good to keep in the book. And but, but it, there's an, the prompt, mm-hmm. I guess, what is the prompt? Like what's sure. a concrete example? Yeah. A prompt would be like, I would say Neanderthals are and let it fill out the blank. And I would say homo sapiens are, or uh, Denisovans are. So I put these human species in there and let it fill out the blank and write 20 of them. And maybe one of them is funny. Or if you could also take a, you could also take an entire paragraph as a prompt and then it could understand more of what that paragraph is about and maybe be more relevant. So if you're writing a short joke, you can have a short, short prompt and maybe it finishes one sentence. But if you were trying to, um, if you had writer's block and you were stuck writing one of your thriller uh, novels and you could put an entire paragraph about the characters and then leave the sentence unfinished and see what it comes up with to see if it can break break your writer's block. And this is something I've definitely been struggling is changing my brain from the way we use prompts with something like Google, where you're, I might just type in what are Neanderthals question mark. And if you mm-hmm. phrase the question like that, it will come up with some kind of, you know, specific answer from a textbook probably. Whereas if you have Neanderthals are, and then carry on although as you said it's a bit too short really but you're going to get something quite different because it's not a question it's almost like complete it rather Mm -hmm. than carry on so what are the other ways that you have to change your brain around in order to pull meaning I guess from the machine you know it also has the the prompt engineering and the fine-tuning go together uh, because yeah, if you were using a commercial GPT-3 that's been trained on a lot, but it's certainly not trained on your thriller novels, you may have to really prompt it as in input all of the characters and backstory and just your type of writing in order to get it to write like you. But if it were fine-tuned on you as mine are, and I had trained it on a bunch of other stuff I had written about Neanderthals, then even a short prompt can be relevant to to me, if that makes sense. So a, a generic model might not be relevant and you might have to really prompt it intensely 
maybe putting the dialogue quotes and the name of the characters and this and that. But imagine if you had a series of books and you fine-tune the model on that. Your model is now intelligent generally, but it has it's been tuned on the downstream task of your series. And so it should know quite a bit of, of how your books work. And so you might not need as heavy prompt engineering. <laughs> yeah. So. And it's so interesting. Again, my I'm my thoughts are evolving on this every day at the moment as I mm-hmm. learn more and play with things. And I was thinking, even when I sent the questions to you, you know, yes, I would like to train a model with my whole corpus as JF Penn and maybe with some other people who write in my genre. And then we can look at writing in our voice or my voice, as you were saying, fine tuning the model. But since I've been looking at pseudo write and the GPT-3 beta in a different way, what I'm realizing is the fun part for me is this is a brain that's different from mine and I'm finding Mm -hmm. it far more delightful like I'm finding delight and as I said I'm kind of giggling going wow I just never would have thought of that and the danger of trying to chain train a model to be like me is that it will I can do that myself Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I almost feel that actually I want a a brain is the wrong word but you know a model that is not like me so that I can have the benefit of almost collaborating with something else yeah and even with fine tuning, what you're trying to do is you can make it a little like you, or you can make it a hundred percent like you and basically uh, plagiarize. And you always have to be careful of plagiarism with these models because they may write the same thing that's been written before. And the one thing I did play around with the generation step, there's, there's parameters that you may have seen called temperature, which is kind of the randomness of what it's going to predict next what it's Mm. going to pull from if you turn it up you get a big you get a crazy mush that may make no sense if you turn it all the way down you may get exactly what's been been said before um so one one fun example of fine-tuning i did i had an, an uncle who passed away but we used to write a ton of emails to each other and i downloaded all his emails from from google and fine tuned the model on him and I made it like highly accurate, like highly, like it would sound like him and did some generation. And I like, it was nice. I remembered that he used to always ask like, when should we do lunch? You know, th- these kind of phrases. So you can make it more or less sound like you as well. But yeah, I'm glad you're having fun. And I've certainly, you know, even when I'm on my models, it comes up with stuff I would never think. And one weird thing is it, it always talks about Elon Musk, even though none of my writing has Elon Musk in it. It, it has some reverence for this man. And it just <laughs> brings your just... model. My, I haven't come up <laughs> against that at all. <laughs> <laughs> He's just all over the internet. And so, yeah, they, he just, they won't stop talking about him, but yeah. Oh no, it's interesting. So I want to, I want to circle back on the, just the creativity aspect, because I think a lot of people in their mind, and again, the word robot, the, you know, the word AI, that all the stock images online, they're metal and they've got lots of angles and they're very technical. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people don't understand that this is, this can be very creative. This is very creative. We are creating things. And you mentioned then the style transfer arts and and you have made this AI art. You've used it as part of the cover. You've got images in that other book. You're also selling them as NFTs, which I've done previous shows on. So 
why do you think is it important to make art and to talk about art and creativity rather than just technology? For me, these generative art techniques are super important because I suck at painting and I suck at drawing. So once I realized I could make unique art that I truly think like looks good and I sell it on t-shirts, I sell it as NFTs. Once I realized like me as a programmer, I could be creative in the programming aspects of it and then produce something that aesthetically looks good. I I love it. it it's just, it, it's fun to do. So I think that's the importance of it for me is I wouldn't normally be an artist and a real trained art school person might scoff at these these techniques because I'm not drawing it out. But for me and for people who like the work enough to put it on a mug or collect it in some way, I think I think it's cool. And so for the poetry book, I did about 80 images that were style transferred in various creative ways where I would like, I took a stock photo of some gorillas playing. And then um, that's the content photo. And then the style photo, I took an image of the back of server racks where they have all the networking cables all nicely structured. And I ran the style transfer program on it that I, I wrote myself. It was based on PyTorch, but I creatively edited it. So it does a lot of weird random variations. And then it also produced a ton of junk. Some of it caught my eye. I thought looked brilliant. And now I have an image of gorillas that look like their fur is made from those style, uh, those structured cables on the back of server racks. And so there's tons of creativity involved, you know, in deciding what images to use. And, and you, I, you spend money using, making uh, it run on these GPUs to produce all this art and, then you use your aesthetic sense to, to pick it. And yeah. And for stone age code, since it's a, it was a print book and a Kindle book as, as well. I wanted to style transfer the images so that they're black and white so that they, they print well. And so I took stock photos again and used something like music sheets, like a sheet of music with that's all black and white. So I transferred black and white style onto a photo so that it, it turned, you know, it's like an advanced, like kind of Photoshop technique, but using AI to do that style transfer. So yeah, it's important to me because it was just, it was fun. It was a fun distraction from writing. When writing got hard, I could produce the the cover art and the interior images. Mm. You, so you mentioned that you use stock photos. This is one of the big questions about all this stuff is the base material we use to train things. So I don't imagine that the stock photo had a license to use in style transfer training models or something like that in the same way that most of the data that is in gpt3 for example didn't have a license so what are your thoughts on on that yeah the all those stock photo websites they whether you pay for them iStock, about half of mine were uh, purchased the license to use it from iStock or unsplash which is photographers upload their their photos and put a, any use license to it. I think that the the artists understand that 
people are going to, for marketing purposes or whatever, edit those photos in any way. And I don't think any of the artists would have issues of having their their photos, you know, style transferred and edited. And at least they've signed over, you know, the rights to those to iStock or, or Unsplash for that. Um, iStock itself has has its own limits. Like I can put the images in the book, but I can't sell more than 500,000 copies without mm. upgrading my license. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm going to try not to do that. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because in it's much, much easier to portray artistic use of AI with visual art, which is why I think it's become so big mm-hmm. much more quickly. Yeah. Whereas with words, I don't know why people just seem a lot more precious with words. I mean, there's a huge flourishing AI art and music community now, right? And I feel like with the writing community, we're well behind on understanding that you can uh, augment with AI in order to make art and have fun. And I just feel it's so playful. And what you're talking about is being playful. But I do think a lot of people who don't program and I understand my husband's a programmer I understand that programming is also creative but a lot of um, writers of English language or any other language that's not programming don't really understand that Mm -hmm. yeah I have some thoughts on that for sure and I know you've talked about people worried about a tsunami of AI written books out there Mm. but also I think your last guest Paul Bellows was spot on in the fact that, yeah, AI may get better at writing, but the recommendation engines that recommend the types of books you want to read and the quality of books are also getting better, arguably faster than uh, the writing is because that's because Amazon wants to sell you stuff. And so they're going to recommend what's best. And so I wouldn't worry about a tsunami of, of books for one. And then for... <laughs> The people being hesitant towards using these tools, it's like if you had a, a writer's group. I, I mean, if it's, we have a, a lonely life now where we're all writing inside and on lockdowns and this and that. But if, if you had a, a writer's group where you work on your novels together and bounce ideas off of your friends and they suggest something about your novel that's com- a new character or something that's completely novel... I don't see why that is so much different than using, you know, this AI muse to come up with new ideas. And I think there's a lot in my head, because also similar to you, you generate things or you do various prompts and then you have to have this editing process. And you almost that's part of the creativity is the choosing of the things that you then might riff off with your own writing so first of all it's the prompt you have to design the prompt and then you get some stuff returned to you and then you have to edit what is returned to you and then once again you might use something from that to prompt again so to me it's almost changing the editing process and the choosing process is a part of the creative side totally I think that yeah, it was. It, I, I haven't written a book before, but this book certainly wasn't easy to write, even though I had these tools. And 
the cherry picking aspects of it, which is kind of putting the human back in the loop of the generation um, was hard and creative. And you use your sense to decide what part was good for that. I have thought of an idea to try to make it easier. Even Um, I told you earlier, I use in my day job, I use mostly classifier models and that is where an AI can tell you the type, you know, Oh, this is about this section of the book is about baking pies. And if you're a, a a cozy mystery writer, like Meg Muldoon or something like you want to have a lot of those type of, of sections about um, baking pies in, in your mysteries, or maybe you can also just have a binary classifier, which is a model that decides whether something is just quality or not good or bad one or zero. And you can, you can get a score based on that. And so this is my next goal. It's some ideas for, for the next book I want, I want to write to even automate the cherry picking process a little bit more and using probably a smaller model like GPT Neo that it's much smaller than GPT three, but it should be better than GPT two. And it's, it should be affordable enough for me to train it, but then adding a, another layer like a BERT model that classifies what the type of thing is, how quality it is, and take out some of that cherry picking. So I hope that the next book has more AI influence and less burning out my eyeballs than than this one did. (laughs) Is that related to the idea of the generative adversarial network? It is. Yeah. That would be another way to take it. Explain that for people who might not know what that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you kind of have two two brains that are bouncing off each other, two neural networks, one's generating, one's discriminating, and both have functions inside of them that allow them to get better over time. And so it, it produces something maybe illegible at first if it was writing, or if it was art, maybe it produces something ugly at first. And then the discriminator network can decide what, you know, whether that was good enough or not. It, and they both get better. So that's one way to take it. I'm not sure if anybody's done that so much with uh, transformers like GPT and writing to make a GAN out of those. I'm sure somebody has tried. There's probably some research papers. Um, mine was going to be more of a generator and discriminator, but the discriminator doesn't get uh, smarter during the training period. It'll just be pre-trained in order to know quality. If that makes sense. I, I haven't built it yet. And I got GPT Neo running yesterday, um, actually generating. I did the Neanderthals are and see what GPT Neo was saying. And but that's not easy because that you know, every time you start one of these new things, there's so much there's a reason they pay machine learning engineers pretty well. There's a lot of work that goes into building one of these things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course, again, most people listening are not programmers. I'm not a programmer. And so a lot of us have to wait until there are more mm-hmm. tools available. So of course, I've got my list at the creativepen.com forward slash AI writing, and I've been listing things. But in, I mean, obviously, there's more tools now with the um, images that you can generate. And I feel like where we are now is just at the very beginning of where this is going to go in terms of, and I think I like the phrase AI augmented. Uh, Is that how you feel? Yeah, I I like that. Another phrase, another marketing phrase would be like a 
create creator empowerment AI or yeah, AI augmented. Eventually, I mean, the people are putting a lot of effort into these things and the worst may come true eventually. I guess all of our creative endeavors may be better done by an AI completely. Looking far into the future, obviously I'm not, we're nowhere near that. It can barely, we can barely write uh, a funny paragraph at this point, but, (laughs) but yeah, people are putting a lot of money and a lot of effort into these things and AI augmented may become more and more augmented to the point where it's AI produced. And then we humans are, we're stuck with, uh, what else do we do? Okay. AI's, AI's taking creativity away from us. What do we do now? And I think maybe we just like, sometimes you say like, uh, take back your humanity, try to just be more and more human. And one thing humans always did was just connect with each other, be friends to each other, take care of each other. And there's so many, there's so many problems left to solve that I don't think we're going to be out of a job anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, it'll be interesting to see these things get get more and more creative on their own, which is my goal. I, I would like t- my next book to be more AI augmented than these past ones. And we'll see how that evolution goes. Yeah. And I, th- I think the important thing is that we are creative beings. We As humans, we are creative beings. And so regardless, if uh, readers want to only read books written by AI in the future, which I don't mm-hmm. think they ever will. But even if they did, we will still write, we will still create. So, and the payment model will no doubt change. But I really do believe that people will always want to read the output of a human, even if that human is AI augmented. So I'm, yeah, I'm not worried at all about a sort of deluge of AI generated books, but it is interesting because I know you have daughters and I do have emails from listeners who say they're not worried about us immediately right now, but they are potentially worried about the impact on their children's jobs. What do you think? Cause you know, you have young, young kids. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, we are creative and I put a um, chapter in there about in Stone Age code about where that comes from. And it's some of the anthropology research thinks that it's, it's really built into us because it helped with mating strategies for, and so that's never going away. That's core to who we are, but like a peacock with its, its large feathers, like what's it doing with those feathers? Oh, it's doing it because the, the female peacock is attracted to it. And over the generations, both male and female had these traits that showed that they are fit. And it was, it's called runaway uh, sexual selection in evolution. And so for us, for creativity, that could be where it came from is somebody's chipping a new rock. Somebody is painting something new in a cave. Somebody is creating something new and it became though maybe not totally helpful for survival. It became helpful for mating strategies. So that's, that's never going away. That's who we are. We're always going to want to create and whether or not the AI's right objectively better than us, we're still going to want to read what other people did because we'll, we'll still be more interested in, in people and who they are than AIs. And f- for my daughters, yeah, like I was saying, I, yeah, 
you could doom scroll and see a million problems left to solve and they probably take creative solutions. So um, not too worried about their jobs in the future. Um, But if they want to become writers or producers or who knows, dancers, singers, musicians, these things, yeah, they'll have to learn to work with AI because it's so prolific. Like you said, GPT-3 is writing 5 billion words a day at this point. And I don't even know how many words human authors on earth write at this point. So, so yeah, you will have to, to keep abreast of it. Just like you had to get a typewriter, then you had to get a computer. And then now you're going to have to work with, with creative robots. But it's definitely the directive role remains with the human. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking, I saw an article about Hollywood. There's a lot of AI-generated actors now who are being sort of replicas of real actors but Mm -hmm. the pandemic kind of demonstrated how much cheaper it would be to use (laughs) these replicas and this is really seriously going to bring down the costs of filmmaking it could all you could you can make a film entirely just within your computer with in inverted commas real actors and uh i but it's still the director still has to have a vision of what they want to output and i feel the same with our writing is you still have to have a vision of where you want what you want to end up with to work with the tools Again, I just don't think anyone, even if you want to press a button and generate, you still have to give it parameters as to what Mm -hmm. to generate. So, again, I see that director role, that choosing. And, you know, people have been using Photoshop as photographers for years, right? And a lot of that is choosing which knobs and dials and buttons to click in order to create a finished artistic product. So, yeah, that's how I see the working with AI thing is Mm -hmm. that you still have to be this director, yeah, that's definitely the the role I took with the poetry book. I, I put my name on it, but I didn't write a single poem. I organized everything. I didn't take the photos and style them, but I, I organized everything into, into a vision. So can AI be trained to have objectively creative visions and be be producers and directors? I guess we'll have to see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, then I just want to end by circling right back to what you talked about at the beginning, which is your job is in the cancer research field. You, you're working in an area. And this to me is the main point is that most of the energy around AI development in the world is around the really big problems like healthcare and the <laughs> environment and lots of things that really are so much more important. Like 99.999% of AI work in the world is not related to creative writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so we don't really need to worry because most people who are developing AI stuff are doing it for either really, really good reasons or to make loads and loads of money, neither of which are related to writing books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can all hope it's it stays that way too because yeah, there's plenty of, of real problems to solve and the creativity is is super fun. And if the robots do solve all those real problems, then we get to sit back and write books and do more podcasts and just be human and be creative. So I think I think that is the goal. If if this AI can solve cancer research and uh, and treatment, then that's wonderful. I'm out of a job, but I could write more books. So <laughs> exactly. Oh, great. So where can people find you and your books online? Sure. Yeah. The latest book is at stoneagecode.com and you'll see all the retail places it's available with. 
And my personal blog and website is shaneneely.com. And that's Neely with the triple E. Just taking your taking your slogan there a little bit. And yeah, I'm all over the internet as chimps are hungry. And you'd have to ask my my seventh grade self why chimps are hungry is, is my um, username. But Fantastic. thank you so much. This was so fun. Oh, no. Thanks so much, Shane. That was great. So I hope you found the interview with Shane interesting and that it might be adding to your ideas of what co-creating with AI can be and how I think our attitudes are shifting. Mine are certainly shifting. I hope I'm shifting other people's attitudes through these interviews. So coming up on Monday, I've got uh, an interview with Sarah Santa Croce on gentle book marketing. And uh, we all know book marketing is an important part of being an author, but many of us would prefer to market in a gentle way. So we'll be talking about that. Happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.